Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato here with my co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey now. And uh, we're going to do a Sopranos deep dive today. Uh, Before I do that, I just want to remind everyone to please follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook. We have a presence on TikTok now, Instagram. Please subscribe to us, spread the word, so we can bring you great content like, like today. So um, not, we're not going to deep dive Sopranos, the television show. We're going to deep dive the upcoming right. Sopranos prequel film known as The Many Saints of Newark, which will be premiering in less than a month, uh, both in theaters and on HBO Max. Well, the Sopranos crime family, I, should, I guess, yeah, I should have yeah. said we'll talk about too. Maybe not, uh, maybe the, not the original the, series. Right, and the fictional crime family, we're going to do a, uh, we're going to break this episode up into talking about breaking news from the world of uh, the Sopranos prequel. There's been a lot of details of the film that have started to filter out into the public ether over the last couple weeks um, to what we should expect when we finally get our eyes on the film. I've been hearing just rave reviews from people that have seen it uh, out in L.A. in the industry. Everyone's incredibly excited about it, so that's making me excited about it. Then we're going to talk about, we're going to kind of play the what-if game and and get into the Sopranos universe and talk about where would the Sopranos crime family be in 2021? Which characters would be in, in what roles in the crime family? What characters might be dead and what might, might be in prison? We know that, uh, uh, well, at least we know that James Gandolfini, the actor that played Tony Soprano, uh, sadly died of a heart attack 10 years ago. Um, so we're assuming Tony would be, de- would yeah, be dead. Or in, pri- or in prison. Right. Uh, so we're going to kind of uh, play around with the notion of uh, where would those characters be today? And we're going to uh, bounce that around and and uh, give a little insight into what we think um, the Sopranos land would look like in 2021. And then at the very end, we're going to give you some more breaking news related to uh, the OG podcast personnel department, meaning myself, <laughs> uh, and my involvement uh, that I can now announce officially in the Black Mafia family universe uh, that has been created by 50 Cent and his G-Unit Productions, as well as the Stars Network uh, and all the people that were behind the television show Power um, are now behind the Black Mafia family show. And uh, I just jumped on board with that team this week, and we can talk a little bit about what we got coming down the pike for uh, celebrating and chronicling the Black Mafia family's legacy and rise and fall. Uh, that show uh, on the Stars Network, the scripted show, uh, will premiere in less than a month as well on September 26th. So a lot of gangster television, gangster uh, uh, film today. So I think the point of departure here, and people can check it out and consult it on their own, is the Rolling Stone article that just came out. And I think the um, uh, the author, Alan Sepinwall, and I'm, I... I plan on contacting this the author. I hope he'll come on the show. He wrote a book about The Sopranos, and maybe we can talk to him personally. But he just wrote a front-page article for the Rolling Stone magazine. and um, Which, by the way, is owned and run by a Detroiter, Jay Penske, the son of Roger Penske, the oh, really? auto magnet. Uh, his son owns uh, Rolling Stone magazine and is uh, on the masthead as uh, the publisher. And Ben Westhoff wrote for Rolling yeah. Stone. I digress. <laughs> you can I check di- out our I, episode I, with him I, about I, gangster I rap. <laughs> but but he, it's really an in-depth article, and, and I think it's interesting because it's really in-depth, and it, yet at the same time I felt like 
it doesn't really give away very many spoilers. But they give you this uh, lens into the machinations that were behind the scenes and in, in, in how this story, this specific story that David Chase, um, the creator of The Sopranos, wanted to tell, how it finally reached the screen. It's been 15 years since The Sopranos went off the air. Everybody knows it was a landmark television show. Uh, some people call it the greatest TV show of all time. It definitely changed forever the television landscape in terms of prestige programming on cable networks. It uh, defined the, the anti-hero uh, character and 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 how the antihero would would go on to become such a major force in in television uh, storytelling. Breaking Bad uh, comes to mind as well as you know, uh, Sons of Anarchy. All those all those uh, creators and uh, right not just the gangster films but gangster shows, but the creator of uh, Mad Men said right. there'd be no Don Draper without right. without Tony Soprano, let alone Walter White or Jax Teller. So David Chase has you know uh, we're not. Uh, disparaging him by saying this has not been prolific since The Sopranos. He's only done one project, um, and that was uh, uh, a, a, a kind of autobiographical, semi-autobiographical story that was an, an independent film um, that was actually co-starring James Gandolfini, and uh, 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 one of the, the co-stars of the new Sopranos movie, John Maguro. Uh, played the lead in that film and played a, a fictionalized version of David Chase as a young man in New Jersey uh, that was kind of obsessed with rock and roll and uh, trying to start a garage band and didn't always see eye to eye with his dad, who was played by uh, Gandolfini. And uh, that was really the only thing David Chase did. And uh, reading this article, you can kind of see where all the seeds were planted and how the foundation was was laid for you know him coming back and bringing us you know Sopranos World 2.0, um, and you you hear interviews with uh, in the in the Rolling Stone story with with some executives, and uh, the first thing I want to touch on and bounce back and forth is this. So the executives that that own the right to the Sopranos, um, I, I believe it's. Uh, well, obviously HBO has a role in it, but I also believe uh, Brian Grazer's company, or again, I, I don't know for sure, but wh whoever are the the Hollywood entities that that own this property had been pitching David Chase for 15 years to bring, yeah. since the show went off the air, have been pitching him ways to bring the show back in yeah. in whatever capacity. That, that, I, that, I, that struck me too as soon and, as I read the article, and it's that not that's not shocking no but when you get to hear some of the ideas that were <laughs> yeah. being thrown around and yeah. it looks like the most prominent idea amongst the hollywood uh um the gatekeepers if you will the people that were trying to convince david chase to come back to this world had conceived this idea that it was going to be a uh a, a story of modern day sopranos with Carmela being the mob boss. <laughs> that could yeah. be the single worst idea yeah. I have ever heard. <laughs> yeah, that might have, like, they might have never been able to recover from that. <laughs> that would have tarnished the brand. <laughs> and clearly David Chase was not on board with that, and that's why that never got off the ground. And, and what I said to Jimmy when we were talking about it 
and this might play into how I view what the you know the fictional Sopranos crime family would be like in the modern day era. Uh, I think it would be more realistic to say that Meadow would have something to do with the crime family just because we knew at the end of the um, show she was marrying the eldest son of a lieutenant of, of Tony's, Patsy Parisi, and uh, I could envision, and again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I could envision there being this kind of younger generation of uh, of, the, of the Sopranos characters that we knew, uh, the, you know, Parisi's, Sopranos, um, the other names that you know we, that we would hear, uh, the you know the Barisi crew or the Aprile crew or or uh, you know the younger generations, the Gervaisis, uh, who actually they flipped, but uh, you know the, those guys might be wanting to take the crime family in, in a more white collar direction. And Meadow having a law degree and being married to Patsy Parisi's son, maybe playing some role as a legal advisor or. Uh, like a Connie Corleone type figure, it, that even that might be a stretch, but I, I I could wrap my brain around that a lot easier if we're talking about a modern day uh, revisiting than I can with Edie Falco playing a, a mafia don. Well, if you read if you read the article, I mean, obviously we didn't talk to these people directly, but my sense is they they envision like. Just keep on doing The Sopranos, but with Carmela instead of Tony. Yeah, and I, that's just a really bad. That's a bad idea. You're right. If if they if they would revisit it, it has to be about a different aspect of the. And I think a different generation, you know, a different, different, generation. different generation. It would have to be. I think almost even like a spinoff. Yeah. Like like the Mayans to Sons of Anarchy, like connective tissue, but but not. Not, yeah. not, not. Um, you know, Janice and Carmela and. One of the things that was you know, the, the cornerstone of the storytelling or the bedrock of the storytelling in, in Sopranos was its commitment to authenticity. Yes. Um, yes, they took some creative license with, with a couple things that I was able to, you know, suspend disbelief with. Um, I've always kind of taken umbrage with the finale because I didn't feel like it was necessarily being authentic to, to reality. But for the most part, 99%, uh, I would say 99.9%, um, they did such a good job of, uh, you know, being authentic that it would be very inauthentic if you, if you try to just fit a, a square peg in a round hole and, and, and just... And in some ways, I feel like it speaks to kind of the woke nature of Hollywood, that they would want to make it as inclusive as possible. And oh, let's make Janice and, and Carmela run the crime family now. Despite the fact that that would never happen in real life. Yeah. The fact that, especially Carmela, never showed any inclination to wanting to be involved in any of Tony's business. I mean, I don't know. There's some people in Hollywood who aren't very woke, though. Yeah. You, you're involved in a project where the female character should be the lead. Right. And they're the Hollywood people you're dealing yeah. with don't see it. Yeah. They think it should be a white guy. Right. And so, so I don't know about middle-aged that. Middle-aged white, middle-aged white guy. Right. But I, I show, it just tells me that, um, so I don't want to get into the gender politics of it, but I would say it tells me that the person doesn't know the mafia. It doesn't, the person doesn't know the authenticity that you're, that you're speaking but to. But clearly doesn't understand the, the Sopranos canon. Right. Or, or the... The, the the fictional world or the the universe that David Chase created, yeah, that wasn't true to the Carmela character. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a really if, bad idea. If anything, I could see 
if you were going to revisit those characters today or the ones that were alive, I, again, we're, we're putting the cart before the horse because we wanted to talk about this after we talked about the details that are coming out about the movie. But I could see Carmella being, re, you know, Tony's either in prison or dead. And Carmella, I could see her remarried to a, a doctor and living a, a kind of similar existence. But instead of the, the Italian criminal world, it's kind of a higher falutin, uh, higher class, uh, white collar world. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm looking at the article again. Because I think status and material things did mean something to Carmel. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, that's something she struggled with right. and then eventually just became self-aware and was yeah. like, like I, the ethics and the morality, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm done pretending as if that bothers me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to own it, and, and I'll do whatever it takes for my kids to make sure that we live in a big house and look how, kids look, are taken look what, care of. Look what she demanded when, he took, when, when she took him back. Yeah. Gave her a Porsche, gave her a mink, gave her a, 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 a construction site. And she accepted that he was a, a philanderer, yeah. Yeah. and like, and, but early earlier in the series, she she wrestled with all that right. stuff, and then and, and from with the church, right? And by the end, she just was like, ah, "Look, it is what it is." But so, I mean, back to obviously, they didn't do that idea. So, um, it says here that early on, even when this series was on the air, they had talked about maybe not formally, but wouldn't it be fun to do? Something with Johnny Boy and Junior. Well, well, I think the reference in the story to that was that if you're a huge fan of the series like I am, you know, one of my you know, favorite things that the show did, and it was only on three or four occasions throughout the show, was have those flashbacks yeah. and get to meet Johnny Boy Soprano, who, at that, uh, who then was played by Joe Saravo, uh, who, if you're a gangster movie fan, you would know from uh, Carlito's Way. He played uh, Tony Tagliucci's son, Tony T's kid, um, who was trying to kill Carlito at the end of that movie. And I thought did an amazing job as as Johnny Boy in the flashbacks. And those were some of my favorite scenes from the from the whole show. And I think the suggestion was made to Chase during season one, and then it was. And then he wrote those scenes into yeah into the into the Sopranos narrative and in, into that uh, universe. So I don't think it was like thrown out during the show as this is something we should do later. I think it was a suggestion that was made and and Chase then wove it into the fabric of the show. You know something that is interesting in the article is about those flashback scenes. They said in the article they acknowledged that this new movie that some of it is inconsistent with what we saw in those flashback scenes. And I actually thought their explanation was convincing because you, what you can do, like they do in a lot of superhero shit is um, you just retcon it. Like you just pretend like it did, like, like, like the, like the, the Halloween movie that came out a few years ago, they just pretend that the other Halloween sequels didn't happen. Right. right? But Instead of doing that, the spin in this article, and I think uh, convincing me is they said that the, what they're speaking to is that memory is faulty. Hazy, yeah. Right, it's hazy. So, like, who's to really say? Like, like was, did it go down like it's going to be in this movie or the flashback? Well, if you weren't there, 
It's hard. It's hard to say, right? And I, I was like, that that actually is convincing to me. You know what? Sometimes uh, I get into the habit of burying the lead. I get so excited about a subject, and then we get a kind. <laughs> uh, sometimes we uh, start running the race, and, and, and sometimes you got to kind of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, jog before you get into a full sprint. So let's just tell people real quick what the gist of this movie is. Uh, yeah. What David Chase uh, uh, wanted to do, what, was he, what he was eventually allowed to do, was tell the story of the Sopranos crime family, which at the time, back in the 60s, was known as the DeMeo crime family, and was again alluded to in, in some of those flashback scenes, but tell the story of Johnny Boy Soprano, Junior Soprano, uh, their... Uh, relatives, and then this character, Dickie Maltesanti, who is referenced a number of times during The Soprano Show, but is, you know, long dead, um, is Christopher Maltesanti's father, who had died when he was an infant, um, and there was a whole episode of the show, I, I think it was the, uh, either, uh, either season four or season five, it was the, the first, uh, it was the debut of the season premiere where uh, they give you a backstory on Dickie Moltisante and that a, a police officer had killed him for a, a mob guy and then that police officer was retiring and, and Tony, as a gift to Christopher, uh, let Christopher go and kill the guy that had killed his father. Um, but even that, remember, the unreliable narrator. Even Christopher wasn't sure if Tony was telling him the truth. Right. Well, if, I'm just, I'm just giving down. people the understanding that this character, Dickie Maltesante, although you did not see him in The Soprano, right. there were pretty you know, important parts of the show that were dedicated to telling people how important he was in, in, the, in, the, in the past of that universe. Yeah, we, that he had mentored Tony. Right, Tony admires him. It's to clear. He, looked, he was like a father figure to Tony. Right. Um, you didn't know exactly how Christopher and Tony were related, even though uh, Tony would call him his nephew. It was actually Carmela's nephew or Carmela's cousin. Right. Um, but so you, we weren't exactly clear on, you know, the actual... Uh, genetics with with Dickie Maltesante and and uh, and Tony Soprano, but just like Tony would call uh, Christopher his nephew, you could see by the clips um, from from the trailer the Dickie Maltesante character, which is being played by a, a longtime character actor by the name of Alessandro Nivola, uh, who this should be a big breakout for, and and frankly his his casting I'm sure was I don't want to say controversial, but I'm sure the studio wasn't thrilled with casting him as the lead. And David Chase kind of trumped everyone because he was the creator of the show. And, they, and I think to go back into this world and provide the studio and HBO what they wanted, he had to have final say on who was going to be playing what. He championed Nivola as the, as the lead, as Dickie Moltisante. And in, and in the show, it looks like, or sorry, in the film, in the, in the clips that you see, Dickie Moltisante is referring to Tony Soprano as his nephew. Just like Tony referred to Christopher. You get the sense from this article that David Chase insisted that that he might not have gone through with this if he didn't get to cast this dude. Right. He wanted to have this guy in some film project. He he's really likes this. The actor. only thing that I can reference Alessandro Nivola from um, is the movie Face Off. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Travolta. That. Travolta or, or and Nick, Nick Cage. That's an old movie. It's from 1997 or 98. He's in that. So he plays. So the bad guy. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was one of those movies that was so unrealistic that you had to do so much suspension of disbelief. 
but it was a very successful film. Uh, and it was about a like a, a terrorist mobster gangster slash uh, kind of uh, mercenary named uh, Pastor Troy, Castor Troy, and the the federal agent trying to to, to bust him, Sean Archer. Sean Archer is played by um, John Travolta. Uh, Caster Troy is played by Nick Cage, and through the the miracle of science, they switch faces, and uh, Caster Troy becomes Sean Archer, and Sean Archer becomes Caster Troy. But uh, Caster Troy's character has a brother and right hand man known as Pollux Troy. Uh, God, do you really know this? And, and <laughs> Pollux Troy was played by. Did you watch this last night? <laughs> no, but I just it was a it was a pretty popular movie in the, in the late nineties, and I know that the Pollux Troy character was played by Alexandro Novoa. I guess he had a big role in American Hustle. I don't remember though what character he was. I don't either. Because David Chase even referenced that in the article. Yeah. I see that on his like yeah. this, uh, filmography or whatever you call that. That was a David O. Russell film with uh, Brad Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, and that has like a mob Christ- subplot. Christian. Right? Uh, Christian Bale and uh, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good film. Robert De Niro pops up as a oh, yeah. Meyer Lansky-ish character. Yeah, right. Um, so, um, but that that sold. That's how David Chase they right so they're able wanted, to sell him on this. So, so it looks like uh, the the timeline of the film is going to be between 1967, the summer of 1967, when the riots were taking place in Newark. And again, those riots were referenced in the Sopranos television show. Um, at least a, a handful of occasions. And one of those flashbacks uh, that they that they had, I know, was taking place during the riots. Um, it was when David Chase w- was was an adolescent, and uh, you know, it obviously made quite an impression on him. And so the sh- the the story's going to go from the summer of 1967 into 1971, and you're going to see Dickie Moltisanti, Johnny Boy Soprano, Junior Soprano. Ray Liotta uh, is playing a character named Hollywood Dick Moltisante, who's going to be Dickie Moltisante's dad. And I didn't know that until I read this article. Have you heard that? Yeah. You knew he was playing his father? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And and I think they're also trying to imply, or maybe not imply, just say that uh, Hollywood Dick Moltisante is somehow Tony Soprano's grandpa. Or played some grandfatherly role in Tony's life. Because there's a scene in the trailer where Ray Liotta is talking to Alessandro Novolo, so it was father talking to son, and he says, keep my grandson out of this. I, th- I thought he said, leave your nephew alone or something. Oh, did he? Yeah. All right, well, maybe I'm... I don't. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't okay. think so. Okay, I could be wrong. I thought I read that somewhere else, too that um, they were going to make uh, the Aldo Maltesante character, Hollywood Dick, was somehow going to be Tony's grandfather. But so I, did I, might, they, I might be mistaken. Aldo Malt- So did they reference him in this show? Before? Never. No. Because oh, I, I, I can't remember. Okay, nope. no. So this is, an, this is the first time yes. we ever... And, I, and then we're going to have this other subplot that I'm very intrigued by, which is going to be this, I guess, growing rivalry in the late 60s in Newark between the Italian DeMeo crime family and the Black Mafia, uh, and that there was a character that, um, that they're, that's named Harold McBriar, 
uh, played by a, a very talented up-and-coming African-American actor named Leslie Odom, uh, and that at one time he was aligned with the Moltisante crew and then eventually goes off and, and starts his own little uh, criminal organization and that there's some type of beef that exists that they're working out between the, the black uh, mob guys and the Italian mob guys. If I'm reading this correctly, I, it sounds like that's the main thing of this movie yeah. is going to be that, what you just described. Right. Not not young Tony. So, yeah, so that's also, uh, again, bearing the lead a little bit. What we learn from this article is that the notion that Michael Im- Michael Imperio, the notion that Michael Gandolfini, uh, who is James Gandolfini's son and has been cast as the young Tony Soprano, the notion that this is a movie about the young Tony Soprano is actually a bit of a misnomer and that we don't meet the young Tony Soprano um, until halfway through the film. Um, so he's not in the whole picture. And that that definitely changes some of my impressions of what we were going to see. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I'm learning that right off the bat, honestly. I might have been a little upset if I went into the... Uh, in, in to watch the film because I'm going to go see it opening night on October 1st. Um, I think I'd be disappointed if, if I'm going in there expecting to see a whole story about uh, young Tony Soprano and then you don't really meet him um, in, until an hour and a half into the film. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely under that impression. And, and, the, and the article actually talks about that, and David Chase, I think, says he, 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 he didn't really... Um, go for this but it, it was out of his hands that the mark they're marketing it as <laughs> a movie about young tony soprano and I, to me that makes total sense from a marketing perspective doesn't that make total well, sense? well just watch the trailer yeah right the trailer right. makes it look like you're you're gonna yeah. you're gonna ride in a you know you're, you're gonna ride shotgun in a in a story throughout the whole film you know watching a young tony soprano come of age that's yeah. the what the that's what the trailer is telling you yeah, and it, so the it, trailer's obviously being slightly de- deceptive. Yeah, and he David Chase says you know, he doesn't he he that w- that wouldn't be his call. Right. But so it seems that it's going to be a movie about Dickie Moltisanti, and then it, as it turns out, a young Tony Soprano is an important figure in his life. But again, the anchor is Dickie Moltisanti. It's not it's not young Tony, and he's got some of these guys around him like Dickie Moltisanti. Dickie Moltisanti is the focus of of this. Right, and I didn't know that until. I mean, obviously, you knew he was going to be an important part of it, but um, yeah, and the, and the stuff about the um, uh, race relations. Can you remind me and the audience because I don't remember them referencing the civil unrest. Maybe was it when Tony takes AJ to like the old neighborhood where the, his grandparents yeah. live? Was that one of the scenes? That where was he... one of them, and then one of the flashback scenes. Uh, I believe it was the episode where young Tony was jumping into the trunk of the car when Johnny Boy was taking uh, Janice to the carnival every weekend and trying to make it seem like it was this daddy-daughter date, but in reality, him and his buddies were (laughs) selling merchandise, uh, selling hot uh, stolen goods out of, like, the funhouse at at the fair. Um, I know that in that scene, in that episode, 
they reference that it's the summer of '67 and the riots are going on. Oh, you have a good memory. I don't. I don't because I don't Livia, because the Livia character, who was being played by an actress I don't know, but it was supposed to be a younger Nancy Marchand, who was the elder Livia, says to the young Tony as he's leaving the house, "You know, uh, be careful. Look what's going on in Newark right now." And then they show the the riots on the television. Oh set. wow, you have a good good yeah. memory. So. It's clear that that's something that David Chase is interested it in. It made an impression on him. Yeah, and then now he has an opportunity to to explore it. I think that's a cool um and it sounds like that that's a core part of this movie the, I think that's the where the tension between the African American gangsters and the and the DeMeo crime family. And I think that's something that comes through in the title of the film, The Many Saints of Newark. I think he's saying that there were a number of formidable criminals that were all kind of fighting for a piece of the pie in Newark. It wasn't just the Sopranos or the DeMeos or the Moltisantes. Yeah, it'll be interesting uh, to see what kind of social and political uh, narrative that, that, that emerges out of this. I mean, I think we can compare it to our hometown in Detroit um, where around that time period, the late 60s, early 70s, you had a changing of the guard in a lot of ways where you had the Italian uh, mafia that always kind of had their, um, you know, hands in the black underworld and were financing a lot of the black underworld and were, you know, shot calling from a distance uh, and, and providing a lot of the resources that they were using or protection that they needed to operate. And then in the late 60s and, and 70s, kind of coinciding with the civil rights movement and the black power movement, you had a lot of these groups um, as that I would call the Superfly era. Uh, you know, a lot of those organize, black organized crime groups, drug, drug gangs, that were breaking off from the Italians and going, going to establish their own uh, drug connections and their own protection rackets. And, and it caused, you know, some, in some of the cities, it caused tension. Chicago, too. The, yeah. the, for a long time, the African-American gangsters operated under the thumb yeah. of the... In Detroit, the we had a much smoother transition there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Guys got killed in Chicago. In right? Chicago, you had an all-out war Yeah, um, when the... Well... The difference in Chicago, I digress again. Uh, the difference in Chicago was that there was no Italian influence on the African American organized crime landscape. Right. Until uh, they realized how much money. Until they realized how <laughs> yeah. much money was there right, right. when Sam Giancana did a yeah. prison stretch right. with Eddie Jones. Eddie Jones was one of the major black kingpins. And Eddie Jones kind of tipped Giancana off to what was going on yeah. and wanted to uh, uh, make an alliance with him. Yeah. Giancana gets out of prison, goes to Tony Accardo, and is like, let me go take over the yeah. south side of Chicago and yeah. take over their numbers racket, take over their drug racket. And a guy by the name of Tough Teddy Rowe, who was Eddie Jones's contemporary or, you know, he was uh, – Eddie Jones was McDonald's and and – um, Teddy Rowe was Burger King or, you know, Coke and Pepsi or, you know, was the other major black criminal figure. And Teddy Rowe uh, said, if you come in here, I'm going to start shooting. And he killed a yeah. number of yeah. Italian guys that went in yeah. there, including 
uh, one of Sam Giancana's bodyguards, Fat Lenny Cafano. And Giancana was, I mean, it, it's relevant because this is going to be theme in this movie. He was real slippery about that because didn't he didn't he let didn't he let them believe that oh yeah this is going to be a partnership and then and then he like was yeah. once they got in bed he was like all right fuck you guys well Eddie Jones Ed, Eddie Jones ended up that's what he was telling Eddie Jones's crew yeah yeah and right. then he edged Eddie Jones out of the whole business right right once that's he what I mean. got in right. yeah right that's Teddy I mean. Rowe was just not even going to entertain the conversation no. well he saw right through he was like and, this is going to be a takeover yeah. And it's it's interesting that uh, about ten years later, uh, they had a bug up and running in um, Sam Giancana's headquarters, and they caught him. I think it was on the anniversary of Teddy Rose's murder. Uh, they caught Giancana being like, "It was a shame we had to kill him. That this guy was oh yeah like lauding him. Yeah, like, this guy had balls of yeah, steel. Yeah, he's a real gangster. Yeah, like yeah. saying like re- having respect." For a guy that he ordered <laughs> right. dead. Right, yeah. Um, it, it's also interesting if you think about parallels to true crime, the Joey Gallo, crazy Joey Gallo, right. who was in prison. It was the exact same time, too. Yeah, and he's... If, if, if There's some that argue that there there was a... I mean, you could say he was cynical, but at least he was exploiting the sort of political like uh, situation because he was... In prison with a lot of dudes who were like connected to and interested in black nationalism, and he was using this sort of like get a line with me. Like, why why should you guys take a back seat? Like, look at civil rights. Look at like this is the zeitgeist of all of society. Why should gangsters be any? Why should gangsters be any different? Right? Like, you have the right to more of the pie, just like any other element of society. So him and, and Nikki Barnes, um, who was the most uh, a yeah. well-known African-American organized crime figure in New York during the 70s. They both had done a, a prison stint together in the 60s. Gallo had gone to prison after he had gone to war with Joe Profaci in that the first Colombo War. And both of them saw each other as critical to their own respective futures. So crazy Joe, and they both did a, a, a relatively short stint. Let's say they both did five years. And they come out in around the same time, 1970, 71. And Gallo has, you know, has integrated his mafia crew. Right. Um, is doing business with all the guys down in Harlem, which is scaring the living hell out of everyone else in the Italian mafia, thinking that he's got all these black, henchmen yeah, right. to Forcers. do, his, do yeah. his bidding. And then with Nikki Barnes, um, and then every major black dope dealer at that time, eventually it changed. But, you know, saying that you had an Italian connection was a status symbol. Yeah. I mean, you even see that in my one of my favorite scenes in Carlito's Way. I mean, I know that was Puerto Rican, but but still, like, I run with made guys. Made guys. Connected guys. Pleasant <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> right, right. Right, but yeah, no, there's, there's, and you see that to an extent in American Gangster too. I mean, the point is how Frank Lucas sort of uh, goes independent, but, but there was that up until that point, like Bumpy Johnson and those guys, like there was real currency yeah. if you were connected to um, uh, the uh, the Italian. And I think again, I uh, like what I said about Dick Maltes, uh, Hollywood Dick Maltesante possibly being revealed as as Tony Soprano's. 
uh, grandfather. Uh, I've also heard uh, some rumors in terms of this uh, fictional Sopranos landscape of the 1960s and 70s that Frank Lucas, the character that you meet in American Gangster, played by Denzel Washington, um, who had a pretty significant presence in Newark. They don't show you that in American Gangster. They make it seem like he was just yeah. in Harlem. Right. But he had uh, territory in New Jersey. Right. And I believe that he ha- he plays some minor role in this backstory um, between the Italians and, oh, really? and the African-American gangsters in the many saints. Like, a, like a, they're going to mention like a nonfiction character? Right. Like I think they actually might have someone playing Frank Lucas. Because that's not unprecedented because it was never anything major, but there were a few times in The Sopranos where they would acknowledge yeah. John Joe Gotti. Banano, Joe Bonanno. Right. Joe Bonanno's. Joe Bonanno. Gravano. Yeah. Remember they acknowledge yeah. when they talk about is pussy a, a, a informant? Uh, Albert Anastasia, I remember. I, or I remember seeing a picture of Albert Anastasia laid out all amicably. Remember, because Junior's <laughs> like, we used to settle things amicably back in the day. <laughs> so there were a few times where they, so that 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 would be interesting. That would be cool if they bring in, like, some nonfiction um, characters. I, another, I, I'm guessing that they would just say that the Harold McBriar character had some connection to Frank Lucas. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Let me bring up a couple of other things and see what you think about that I thought was interesting. Uh, one, and this makes total sense, and I'm glad they're going to do this, that they said they're real conscious that the fashion is different for gangsters in this period. These gangsters are more dapper. They said they didn't want it to be the guys in the wife beaters and the leisure suits like we would see in The Sopranos all the mm-hmm. time, you know, the jogging suit or the wife beater, that these guys, be, these guys would be more, that they were better dressers yeah. back then. Well, and I was the, like, that makes sense. When I read that, I was like, yeah, that makes, that well, makes there sense. there was a distinct shift in gangland circles around the country in the 80s and 90s where those old timers, you'd never see them without a jacket and tie. Yeah. Right. And in the 80s, you had the, the, the uh, jogging suit culture. <laughs> right, right. Where, and you see that, like you said, you see that in The Sopranos. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and, I mean, we, again, it, it's always going to be about Detroit with us because we're from Detroit. But, you know, our uh, current uh, alleged uh, mob boss, Jackie Jackaloni, I've never seen a guy in a suit. The guy, yeah. I've never seen a picture of him in a suit. He rocks never, a leisure he's suit in a, all the time. He's in a jogging suit. <laughs> he's in a Nike jogging suit or a Adidas jogging suit, where, you know, wherever he is. Right, whereas, like, uh, you know. Track suit. Like, um, you'd see, like, Tony Jack. Tony Jackaloni. I never saw Tony Jackaloni in no. a jogging suit. No, he was always, he was always dressed, dressed in the, the nines. nines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, same thing with same Bill with Jack Toco. To- and Jack Toco and, yeah. <laughs> Joe Zerilli. Right. right. So when I read that, I was like, that's good. That's smart. Uh, and they, they said that they're going to. You never saw Tony Accardo. No, God, in a, can, in you a track suit. can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, um, remember, uh, um, you've actually never, you actually don't see Joey, uh, skinny Joey in Philly. He's not a tracksuit guy. He's dressed to the nines. Yeah. He's an old, he's more for of an newer, old for newer, yeah. for a, I shouldn't say newer, he's but a for fashionista. a fashionista for right. For a contemporary. He's a true fashionista. Guy. Um, and, uh, I think they said there, there, there's going to be some hints from the Pauly character that they said they'll they'll make a nod to that you you can sort of foreshadow that he might be a guy that in the future will we'll, dr- we'll, we'll, we'll wear we'll wear yeah, tracksuits right we'll wear tracksuits wait so right. that's a good that's a good jumping off point for <laughs> what characters are we going to see that we know already 
that are going to pop up as younger versions of themselves in the uh, movie prequel. And uh, you mentioned Paulie Walnuts. Um, you're going to see him, played by Billy Magnuson, um, is an actor that might not be necessarily a household name, but he's got a face that's he's been in quite a few things in the last 10 years. I'm guessing people will recognize him. Um, you're going to see uh, Big Pussy is going to have a, a, I don't know the name of the actor that's playing Big Pussy, but I know there's there's a scene in the trailer where uh, you see Pauly and Big Pussy in the car together. Um, you're going to see Silvio Dante, played by John Magoro, who we referenced earlier in this episode, had played the lead in David Chase's one um, one project in, in his post-Sopranos uh, career since, uh, or up until this point. Uh, had played a young version of David Chase in in um, I'm blanking on the name of the film. Uh, they talk about it in here. I don't. I never. I didn't I got, see it. I got It's gonna drive me crazy. Not not fade away. Not fade away. Um, and uh, strange name. <laughs> all, yeah. due, all due respect to David Chase. Uh, and uh, he plays Silvio Dante. I know there's a character that's playing uh, Beansy. Oh really. I know there's a character that's that, interesting. Uh, there's a character who's playing uh, Artie Bucco. Okay, and he'd be he'd be younger. He was like yeah. Tony's contemporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure about Ralphie. I'm not sure about Jackie April. Well, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have to think some of them will at least make the the article did say there will be a number of Easter eggs in here. Yeah. They said they said on the on the one hand they want this to be a self contained movie. They don't they don't want you to think that this is somehow like you have to watch this if you're going to watch the sopranos or whatever to understand either one of them but they said they will have nods and easter eggs too so i imagine some of those people will make whatever references or brief appearances or john, something. Uh, johnny boy sopranos being played by john bernthal who i don't know if i've mentioned on the show before but is my favorite up-and-coming leading man right now yeah, he's cool. uh, he's you know he's the punisher uh, on Netflix, he was on The Walking Dead. Sicario. Uh, Sicario. Um, I love him in uh, Wolf of Wall Street, which was his first kind of breakout role, uh, first time that he was really exposed to the masses. That was before Walking Dead, too, right, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, he played uh, DiCaprio's childhood yeah. best friend, Brad. Right, right. Um, and just uh, Wind River, he's great. Everything I've oh, ever yeah. seen. Everything yeah. I've ever seen Burnthal. Everything ever I've ever seen Burnthal, and he's amazing. That's a great film, too. Uh, another underrated flick that's on Netflix, if you've never seen, that he's good in is Shot Caller, um, which is about the, the prison underworld. Oh, I didn't see. Oh, is that like white supremacist or something like that? Not really. It's uh, about a guy that goes to prison, and he's like a you know like an, an accountant yeah. or whatever, and he ends up becoming the boss of the white prison gang. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I've, heard, I've heard about it. Some yeah. of my students have recommended it to me. It's but really good. It's really good. It, um, they led me believe it was like a, about white supremacist gangs, but they, they might not well, quite mean, understand it, what they're... Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it kind of is, but it's not the A-B per se. I see. I got you. Um, but yes, in, in prison, those prison gangs definitely, the fault lines are, are based on, on Yeah, we, you can listen to our episode with Seth Ferranti. Yeah. And he, he's very, he lays that out. So John Bernthal plays Johnny Boy. Corey Stoll, um, who I, you know, I believe people would be familiar he's with. He's been in a lot of stuff. House of Cards. I believe he was in um, uh, Black Mass. 
Was he? What did he play in Black Mass? I think he played one of the uh, supervisors. Oh, okay. Yeah, supervisors. Oh, yeah. And he was in, you know, I'm a big nerd. I love sci-fi and horror shit. He was in a, a cool vampire show. He was, like, the main character in, um, fuck, I can't remember what it was called. And I watched it. I, I watched the whole series. Um, <laughs> whatever. I can't, I can't remember. And the then Vera Farmiga. Um, I love her. Known too. from her role in The Departed. Uh, as the female lead in The Departed, um, is playing Livia Soprano. Would not be shocked if she gets a uh, Oscar nod for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how much her in, because if Tony is not a huge character in this, maybe we don't see as much of her as we're thinking either. Johnny Boy, probably more so because of the gangster shit, you would think he's going to be in it yeah. a lot. Well, I've heard a lot of the... Um, the Strain, by the way. It was the show with Corey Stoll. Sorry. I couldn't remember it a few seconds ago. Uh, I think they are going to have a lot of the same uh, scenes that they would have in uh, late 90s, 2000s Soprano world that was taking place in the back of Satriali's oh, pork store uh, in this, you know, canon... Uh, or, or in this um, this version of the 1960s, uh, they had already taken control of, of, of Satriali, so you're going to be seeing a lot of the kind of where Tony and his crew were hanging out back in the day. Uh, you're going to see Johnny Boy and, and Junior and I believe Dickie Moltisanti hanging out in the late 60s, early 70s in, at Satriali's. And just a shout-out to uh, Vera Farmiga, if you're a nerd like me, she's like the main scream queen right now she's in the godzilla movie oh the conjuring the conjuring and annabelle movies she was in uh played uh norma bates in bates motel right, right. she was fantastic in that so i'm super psyched she was really good in up in the air with george clooney right yeah so she's fan i think she's just one of the best actors out there right now um just let me mention something else to get your thoughts on and we can do some shameless self-promotion here um maybe you'd heard this before that Ray Liotta, that David Chase wanted Ray Liotta to play Ralphie. Because we know we broke a story in our show when we interviewed Robert Fernaro, from, who was Eugene, that he was originally cast, was cast. cast as they Ralphie. They were actually shooting. Yeah, they were shooting, right. And just the, the vibe, you can listen to the episode, just wasn't working. So then they came up with that other character because they still wanted him on the show. But it seems like even before that... He'd been friends with uh, Gandolfini. That's right, in the theater. They did theater yeah. together. But um, so check out that episode where we one of our other deep dive Sopranos episodes. But um, it sounds like even before that, David Chase was trying to convince Ray. Liotta. Had you See, ever I, heard that before? No, I, I Ray Liotta is a, a, a tremendous actor. I'm sure he would have been outstanding as Ralphie and put his own spin on it. I don't doubt that. But in my opinion, the two best characters. On the Sopranos, Junior's Junior's my all-time. Oh yeah, <laughs> but taking taking away Junior, uh, the two best characters were Richie April and Ralphie Cifaretto. Scene to me, yeah. And David Proval as Richie April and the best. and Joe Pantoliano as Ralphie Cifaretto yeah. just hit grand slams, hit every yeah. note, every beat, every nuance. Um, the I think those characters were layered. Uh, and I think that they just did such a um, an excellent job that, again, although I recognize that Ray Liotta has the acting chops to, I'm sure, have pulled off a, a great Ralphie, 
I just can't envision anyone other than Pantoliano who who just mastered that 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 role and that that just sick twisted um e- you know egotistical um maniacal and 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 I think a lot of people thought in season 3 when they introduced Ralphie after they killed Richie that Ralphie was just going to be another Richie but he no. had, they did such a great job of, of evolving that character um yeah they it's just a loose a loose cannon yeah. um I mean but both Richie and Ralphie were loose cannons but not anywhere near. Well, Richie the wasn't same wasn't line. a sleazeball right. like <laughs> like Ralphie. Right. Um, I mean, the scene with the the scene with him and and the the stripper that he kills. I mean, that's probably, probably the best be- scene in the probably series. Probably the best show. Probably that one could be the best episode. That of the them, show. that might be one of my favorite scenes. That and the Bobby Fanaro episode where he you know the whole episode is dedicated dedicated to Gene Pontecorvo and Gene Pontecorvo ends up killing himself at the end of uh, the season six premiere season six or seven premiere um, but the, the I, I probably the best episode um, in my opinion my, was, some was of my that, favorite scenes in the whole series because most of the show you have people who Tony bullies his family his wife the Polly pussy Christopher and so some of my favorite scenes were guys like Richie Ralphie Johnny Sack the characters that the power dynamic was different yeah. and they weren't afraid of Tony they won't back down <laughs> they won't back down and, and those are some of the best scenes to see all of a sudden to see someone oh whoa like someone's like st- someone stands up to Tony they don't let him like and <laughs> both, both Ralphie and Richie were politicking behind the scenes. Ralph, yes, yeah. Richie was trying to go to Junior to get him to support oh, those him. those are some of the best scenes, too. And and uh, Ralphie's going to Johnny Sack. He couldn't sell it. He couldn't sell it. He's got <laughs> tremendous moxie for a man his size. I'm in awe of you. Remember, Bob? <laughs> I'm in awe of you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it, yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's difficult to imagine anyone else in those, in those roles. Let me ask you, um, before we move on to the other things we're going to talk about, one thing that was mentioned in the story and you and I were texting last night about it that it just strikes me as really interesting. We know that from the Sopranos, Tony likes rock and roll music, especially 70s, early 80s rock, hard rock music. And so his son in real life, who's playing him in the movie, we'll, we've already established that, he goes to David Chase and he says, okay, I, I, I mean, you know, my character listens to 70s rock. What should be on my playlist? I've got Led Zeppelin. And then David Chase stops him right there. And he's like, no. Right. He's like, Tony Soprano doesn't listen to fucking Led Zeppelin. And he says it like <laughs> I think with that's con- his words. Exactly. And he says it with like contempt. With contempt. And so I just want to. I just want to ask you, wh- like, I find that interesting. And what do you think that's about? Well, I would think that Tony Soprano would, you know, possibly be a, you know, uh, not not someone that doesn't like all European rock, but someone that is very particular in what non-american rock music that he's listening to like i can see him listen to sabbath yeah and deep purple yeah but I, I i i can kind of see what what uh david chase is saying that tony might snub his nose at zeppelin and, and you know what makes me reminds me of that is like could could it be because black sabbath and deep purple we should get mark our engineer <laughs> in on this conversation but uh who was a rock and roller and a great engineer um Deep Purple and Black Sabbath were like working class bands. Yeah. Led Zeppelin were like the sex symbols, 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? And maybe I was thinking, I wonder if that's a thing where like Tony's not gonna have a fucking poster see, like, of Robert Plant with this fucking cock rock. But like I could see like <laughs> once Tony gets, you know, older into like 75, 76, like I could see Tony being a big Aerosmith fan. Yeah. Yeah. Like or you know into Springsteen obviously because he's from Jersey. Yeah, sure, right. But yeah, I think I think let's, and the fact that his consigliere was actually in the East Street, band. of course. Oh yeah, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think there's something to that 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 Led Zeppelin might have been too too sexy for for Tony. Or maybe even too mainstream. And too mainstream. And and then I was thinking even when I was texting you last night is like. Like this goes back to the working class thing. Is after a while, Led Zeppelin came off as sort of like pretentious, you know, with all their like fucking pagan and like. And I know like a lot of the punk rockers that came out of like the England, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, they started off as Led Zeppelin fans, like everyone did in the late sixties, early seventies. But after the after a while, and this is before punk is even really a thing. Part of like that that like protest is. They felt like bands like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, yes, that it just, it, it, it wasn't like rock anymore. Right. It became real pretentious. Lost and, the ethos. And lost it, right, yeah, that it wasn't like connected to the streets anymore. There was no <laughs> rebellious quality to right. it. Like it, when was, you, it was too mainstream. Rock and roll wasn't meant to yeah, be mainstream. And, and then when you watch like um, the Led Zeppelin film, Song Remains the Same, which if you're a rock and roll nerd like we are, we, we love that film, but you could see a street guy Viewing that as like Jesus Christ, what is this like an art film? Like right. this isn't <laughs> this isn't like rock and roll, like connected to the streets. So I, I suspect it's a lot of that going on. But I'd really like to ask David Chase like to unpack that even more. Wasn't there, wasn't there a scene where he gets into his car and has a panic attack while he's listening to uh, Smoke on the Water? Isn't Deep Purple? Wasn't that that, that was one of? But didn't he have another one when he was listening to uh, Slow Ride? Oh, maybe. Fog hat. He has the panic attack when Boston is playing, and that's at the garbage man's ball. Okay. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> more than a, or more than more a feeling, feeling from Boston's playing. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder if there's a connection there. But I just thought that was a really intriguing, uh, because we're big music fans here, too. So, so um, where let's uh, pivot to uh, where do the yeah. uh, DeMeo soprano crime family, where do they stand in 2021? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I put something out on Twitter, and we got a, you know a lot of interaction, a lot of response. So you know, hopefully, people like this conversation. Now, are we assuming Silvio's dead? I I would was, I would was, say so. He was in life support when when the uh, show ends. Been shot in the war between uh, the Sopranos and the Lupertazzi crime family. I'm I'm assuming that he's either dead or a vegetable, and so he can't. He's off the board. Paulie is. I mean the. Right now, have you seen pictures of of? Uh, yeah, he's an old, yeah, he's an old dude now. Of um, Tony Sirico, yeah, he's, he's, he's real old. He's old dude, yeah. I'm assuming if if he's in the picture, and and you know how like places like maybe New York doesn't do it so much, but like Chicago, Detroit, where they have like a an emeritus, like like a guy who's still considered like a high ranking guy, yeah. but he doesn't really have a position per se. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they maybe let him earn, and he kind of is consulted, but. He's not like officially a captain or an so underboss or something. You would believe that for going crew by crew, um, in Chrissy's old crew, uh, Benny Fazio yep. had, had taken over, uh, played by Max Casella, um, was my favorite of all the the uh, kind of side mob characters. I had grown up with Max Casella uh, as 
as uh, Vinny Del Pino in the Dewey Hauser series. <laughs> yeah. So when he appeared on my screen in The Sopranos, I was just like, this is so cool. Like, Vinny Del Pino is a mobster. Hey, you know, I was so, I was like, I didn't even realize it was him. Like, because it was such yeah. a different type of, when someone said that, I was like, oh, fuck, you're right. That is the guy from Doogie Howser. Honestly, I did, it didn't occur to me the so first time I, I saw him. I love all of Benny Fazio's scenes. Um, his stuff with Artie, his feud with Artie. Yeah. It's great. Uh, Jimmy and I were talking a little bit off air. And it, you know, we're we're super geeky if you're trying to read the tea leaves with a fictional crime family, but um, you know, Tony was having Benny Fazio as his driver. Mm -hmm. Benny Fazio was not a uh, you know a hulking enforcer. I mean, he definitely wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty pulling sure. the trigger, right? But and he definitely was a, a tough guy. Sure. But he wasn't someone that would intimidate others in, in a bodyguard capacity. No. So if if Tony is having him drive him around, uh, we know from you know traditional mob protocol that if the boss picks you as a driver and you're not a knuckle dragger, right? Um, and, and you're being groomed. Mm -hmm. So I would think that uh, the Benny Fazio character, who would be in his I'm guessing in his early 50s now, mid-50s now, um, would be, I mean, he definitely was, if not a capo, on the verge of being a capo at the end of The Sopranos, uh, uh, when the show ended in 06, 07. Yeah. So I would think that he would be part of the administration. I would think that Patsy Parisi um, would possibly be the boss because he, you know, <laughs> had his son marry into The Sopranos' bloodline. And we know, again, reading the tea leaves, uh, a scene that you and I, as people who study organized crime, were like, okay, if this were real, this is very significant when he invites Patsy Parisi over for dinner because he never would have done right. that. Any, uh, he, well, I mean, he, right. he was beneath him. Of course, that's what I mean. He, he, he right. never socialized he with right. Patsy Parisi. He didn't Parisi. like him or his brother. He killed, right. his own, he killed right. Parisi's brother, right? right. So he, you could tell he never, those weren't his favorite guys. And then, and then at the end, right, when he invites him over for dinner, you're like, this some, there's something like... Yeah. <laughs> no, he was looking at him as the same way that yeah. he needed Bobby, he needed Silvio. Right. Someone he could trust. Yeah. Yeah, they could bring him close to him. Because he knew Maltesanti wasn't, that wasn't going to work out. Well, Fally, I think at that Fally point... Wasn't gonna I think at out. that point, Maltesanti was dead. Well, he was, right. And then, and then remember, uh, Tony basically was estranged from Hash at that point. Yeah. He, Paulie, that was a great scene. Paulie was, was things that were was getting worse than Paulie. I'm digressing again, but that was a great episode. And I've also talked to Jimmy about this. I think I've maybe said this on the show that David Chase, to me, was you know trying his best as the show went on from '99 to '07. He was, in in my opinion, intentionally making Tony so deplorable. That he he was like daring the audience to fall out of love with Tony. Yeah, um, and I, I can speak for myself. By the end of the show, I didn't like Tony Soprano. No, um, he was not a very likable. But once you got to know, I mean, he's he's you love him in the first couple seasons because he's kind of charming and has a a gangster. Uh, magnetism about him. Uh, he kind of looks like this big grizzly bear, but is actually pretty well-spoken, street smart, uh, natural leader, and so forth. But the more you get to know him, um, and and 
along those lines was that episode with Hesh, and what when we you said him and Hesh had fallen out, had had a fall, had had a falling out, and it was over money, and it was him cutting into Hesh, and yeah. Hesh feeling like he had to harangue Tony to get loans back, and even Hesh saying to his girlfriend, like how how long until he kills me. And and she was like, "Oh, that's Tony. He would never kill you." And he's like, "You don't know these people." Yeah, that's right. That was a. I felt like that was a sad scene because Hesh was sort of like a fatherly figure yeah. to him, and then when it came down to Tony's, like, he was just it's, cutting it's still into about him. money, he was just like, cutting into him, right, right. And it wasn't like he was taxing him, <laughs> right. There'd be one thing if he said, I'm taxing. Yeah, he your didn't own. need to. He was simply wanted to go get, uh, you know, six figure chunks, right? Because he could. To, to, right, because he could, and because he was starting to gamble. I didn't right. really love that subplot, but yeah. when he kind of had a gambling problem yeah, for, 30, for thirty seconds, yeah, right, right, and you know, ne- you know, needed, uh, you know, instant access to but, cash. But by the way, I think that that's true. That's how those guys are. It was disappointing as a viewer because yeah. you knew those two were close. But that's no, the real. I know. That's the that, how the real is. That is the reality. <laughs> right. That is the reality of what a guy like that would do. Yeah. So he starts cutting into his own, you know, uh, best friend, advisor, uh, quasi consigliere. Yeah. So he. So he. You know, he loses. He either cuts off ties or he doesn't trust. Or guys are actually dead. And so first it's Bobby, and then it becomes Patsy Parisi. This is the guy who the, the last one of the last guys standing that I can bring from the old guard. And so I think Parisi, he's probably not very. We're talking about the, now. We're talking about the Parisi or the Barisis. No, I'm talking about Patsy. Parisi. Patsy Parisi, because then there was also the Barisi crew. Well, I think Larry that- Boy, who it looks like he flipped at the end of the show, and then Alley Boy, who was his cousin. Um, who had gone to jail? Like the char- real life, the real life uh, actor went to jail, and they explained that the character had gone to jail. But you would think that Alley Boy Barisi would, you know, you could assume would be running the Barisi crew now. I think, I think Alley Boy, I think if if Patsy is the boss, but remember, Patsy's not getting any younger either. But if he's the boss, I think Alley Boy might be the. Underboss, but the thing about Alley Boy though is that they kept on trying to tell you how stupid he was. Well, kind of like with Little Carmine. Yeah, because uh, he would, the whole thing with Little Alley Boy is he would just repeat what the one person was like. Uh, I can remember the scene where can you believe your brother? Oh, he was a, great. He gets a a yeah. facelift and then he goes to prison. He's like, yeah. can you believe my brother? He got yeah. a facelift and then he went to prison. He's like, I just said that. Yeah, he does. He he did that a few times. He I think at one point Paulie behind his back, yeah. he's like calls him a parrot or yeah. something like that. But but see, here's the thing. Alley Boy's got a big crew. They've all they always said the Barisi crew is the biggest crew. And he strikes me as a tough guy. Like oh, a, guy, a guy who could a like, tough guy. like yeah. who like who could so maybe he maybe he doesn't have the brains to be the boss. Remember he tells Richie April to go get fucked. Yeah, that's right. Right. So And so, then he he turns to uh um <laughs> Jackie Jr. He's like oh, yeah. that's just another way yeah. of him telling us to go fuck ourselves. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. So I think he might be a little bit more he's certainly quirky, but he might be he might be a little bit more adept or whatever the word I'm looking for than but maybe not boss material, but I, I think you're looking at him, Benny, mm-hmm. and Pari and Patsy as like the somehow that's the now wait, he, the trio. Wait, there's a there's a um wild card here. You didn't meet this character until the very end. But he did something very important. And as we know, in the mafia, a great way to rise up the ranks fast is to carry out a very important job. 
Walden Belfiore yeah. killed Phil Leotardo to end the Lupertazzi Sopranos war. You would think that Walden Belfiore, in the years that followed the 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 show ending, if you were gonna pretend like the Sopranos family was still active and going in this fictional universe after the show, you would think Walden Belfiore would have been rewarded. Well, I think at this point, if we're talking to 2021, he's definitely a capo. He's a capo. He's definitely, right. he probably takes over Carlo's crew. Wasn't, right. he one, wasn't he in Carlo's crew? Yeah, I think he was. So, and by the way, I mean, I, we don't have to get into this right now. We're running low on time. But, you know, there's debates online. There, some people still think that maybe Carlo didn't flip. That it was a false alarm? Yeah. That, well, the, the, the argument is that it's certainly implied, but that you, it doesn't, they don't say for sure. And Same with Larry Barisi, though. Right. That's right. Well, and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not convinced. Well, no, I guess with Larry Boy Barisi, they tell you at the end of that episode where Paulie and him take off for Florida because they're trying to dig up the right. body of Willie Overalls, yeah. who had Tony made his bones on. Right. He says, they're sitting in the car, and Polly's like, I just talked to my, my, my source in the feds, and Larry Boy lied to the guy, lied to them, told him it was Richie. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So, but what does that mean? Is that Like saying that Larry Boy cooperated, but he gave them bad information. Well, does that mean he gets booted out then? Nowadays, I don't know if that's enough to get you. Yeah. You know how we've talked about right. this before. <laughs> like the standards have shifted. Like I'm not sure. Like by today's standard, I mean maybe back yeah. in the day that was enough to get you. At least you lose your stripes. Right. I'm not sure today if that's. I don't know if you said he told it was Jackie or Richie. He had told. Uh, yeah, I remember yeah. now you're saying that, but I, I'm not. I mean, I think Larry's too old to to be like in the administration at this point. But I'm not sure that you know he's he's out of the picture. And I'm not sure Carlo, but I mean, I, I don't know. But but I would say Didn't Walden. Didn't they say Carlo flipped to protect because his kid got busted? Well, that was the. I think that was implied, but I don't think they said for sure. Uh, the thing was, Carlo doesn't show up to the meeting, and then we and we we know his son is busted, and Carlo doesn't. So if you put two and two together, you know. And then I think Tony even says later he thinks Carlo like, but but they don't. It's not like you see Carlo with like an and FBI he, and, person. At the last episode, doesn't, doesn't he try to give Pauly Carlo's construction? Yeah, Pauly's like, I don't want. He doesn't want. He doesn't want the heat or whatever. Like the. Um, so that's another thing. If Paul Pauly's probably still around, but he he ain't the boss. I don't think. He, I don't think he has like a. But I could, you know, kind of what I role. alluded to earlier in the show. I mean, I could see something where, uh, where you have kind of like a Colombo crime family situation where Pat Patsy Parisi is taking his more uh, polished son, like the way that uh, Carmine Persico was uh, groomed Alley Boy. Now, Alley Boy was a, a little, I should say little Alley Boy. Alley Boy was, the original Alley Boy was Carmine's brother. It was, yeah. It was brother, Alley Boy. And then that's why they called the son Little Alley Boy. Oh, I thought, I thought Little Alley Boy was his nephew too. That was his No, son. no, Little Alley, little, little Alley Boy was Carmine's son. son. Oh, okay. Who's now considered the boss of the, right. the Columbos. Right. And Alley Boy, just plain Alley Boy, was his brother. Okay. Was Carmine's brother. Right. Uh, so Little Alley Boy was a college-educated, uh, you know, polished guy in his 20s that, you know, instead of going into the boardroom after college... Uh, Carmine Persico did kind of a Jack Toco in that, you know, took 
his his son that was a much more palatable version of him on the street um you know wasn't a a, a tough guy or wasn't a um someone that necessarily uh displayed outwardly gang you know i don't know what i'm trying to say well, he wasn't a psychopath right. like uh or like scarpa or Persico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like well, it was just a you know i think you kind of see it now in the the new um but he's in prison too law and order oc yeah 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 he's in prison too law and order oc with the dylan um dylan mcdermott character where he's this this new aged gangster that is you know diversified and and vertically integrated uh, in, into white well, collar. I think the best com- parallel with in terms of real life is Vito Rizzuto's son, right? Who's an exactly. a, who's an actual attorney, Lawyer, right? <laughs> so and, and then he's allegedly yeah, the, right. So I could see Patrick Parisi um, playing a role uh, and taking the family maybe in a different direction. And he's married to Meadow. Meadow's an attorney. Maybe Meadow is like in-house counsel for the crime family, and is chiming in on on family affairs both legal and and illegal yeah they never really had any characters like that other than certain hints about patsy's son at the end because up until that point most of the characters if not all were just straight gangsters Mm -hmm. right they never had like that kind of but patrick when they go to the dinner at tony's house yeah patrick is like what was he was he in was he an accountant or was he a yeah i can't i don't remember what he was but he was in the business world yeah meadow had met him at some like professional function so there was no there was no hint that he was doing anything shady at all no okay i don't i don't remember that's why meadow was marrying him so what makes you think that they were going to get pulled into this world I don't. I'm just. Oh. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> okay. kind of spitballing. Perhaps here. I see. Like, I see. If yeah. I was, uh, yeah. If I was David Chase and I wanted uh, I to see, create a modern day, I think I would have Patrick Parisi playing some role, taking the family in a white collar direction, laundering as, money. As at Patsy least, Patsy Parisi was yeah. the boss, and Meadow playing some role in an advisory capacity. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I mean, what, what's what, yeah. what's AJ Soprano doing right now? I don't, yeah, probably. Uh, uh, building uh i don't know carpentry or something wasn't that what he wanted he went to the building trades i mean i could but i could see him falling into into the into the crime family maybe not doing very well but being taken under the wing of of some people because of who he is and then maybe because he was someone who because he was someone that was a perennial fuck up fucking up i I see him as the I see him as the Scarfo other son, like oh, just like killing himself. Yeah, or or the son who changes his name and like doesn't want like doesn't want anything to do. Like he he was too like and he was soft. Yeah, and he he. I mean that was part of the struggle of Tony in the series was Tony. He he was the anti Tony. I mean he was yeah. nothing like his father. No, Meadow all. was more like her his and, father. Or was yeah, more like her father right. than Tony. And, and I don't mean nothing like Tony Soprano in a good way. Not like he was like oh a moral like yeah. I can't believe my father would do like like in, in like uh the like the the, the no, worst he ways fra- he like was Fredo a, that, that's what I mean he was Fredo right yeah. and so that was driving Tony and it's not that Tony wanted him to be a gangster I don't think he did but he wanted him to at least have some balls and be bold and and like decisive and be a man and he he just 
He like like that one ep- episode where he walks in and like like AJ's like giggling, texting, and sitting in his underwear. And you just can tell you could just send Tony. He's gonna throw him through the yeah. fucking window. <laughs> he's gonna like because that's not how that's not how Tony was. So I don't see I don't personally I don't see AJ playing playing a role. I I, I think he gets marginalized. Um, I think Alley Boy Benny. Patsy, I think Walden. I agree with you. What kind of Italian name is Walden, by the way? Remember, Paulie? He, he says he was named after Bobby Darren. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then, and then there, there was other guys like, um, uh, who was the the fat guy, uh, Coco or so? Who's the fat guy that was with Paulie sometimes at the very end? He's the one where they robbed the Colombian drug dealers. Remember, big guy. I think it was Black Tony. I think they called him Black yeah, Tony. Yeah, yeah. He's he's probably a captain. Black or Tony. Like. I think it was T- Tony Marfea. Yeah, called him Black Tony. I'm such a nerd that I know that. No, he maybe he maybe he takes over the Soprano crew because yeah. Benny's like an underboss or something. Yeah, yeah. And then if Alley Boy is uh, if Alley Boy's underboss, then probably someone we don't know is running the Barizi. Somebody that we never yeah. that we that we never saw because. By the end of the show, there's only three crews left. That was my that was my impression, which is another thing that's probably realistic for the North Jersey, right? We didn't even talk about them when we did our current state of the mm-hmm. American. We we totally forgot about the yeah, Decapitantes, right? I mean, that, that's probably all that is left is two or three crews. Yeah. So, um, all right, you want to finish up to, dropping the latest news about BMF? Uh, yeah. Well, the last thing I'll, I'll leave us with um, a rumor that I heard that I am, uh, you know confident enough to report as likely and it's alluded to in the rolling stone article is that i have heard rumblings that this movie the many saints of newark will act as a backdoor pilot for a new hbo television series starring michael gandolfini as tony soprano and we will be back into the sopranos universe seeing a, a young up-and-coming Tony uh, rise through the ranks of the, the Mafia in New Jersey on HBO Max uh, coming in, in 2022, 23, and 24. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said BMF. I meant, I meant we're talking about The Sopranos. Right. And, uh, I mean, David Chase says in the article that I think he's being coy. He's like, oh, I'm open about it. Yeah. But you know from your insiders that well, I've heard that things might be further along than he's And that they'll, they'll announce it next month yeah. uh, when the, the movie does very successfully, which I'm confident that it will. Probably. Uh, switching topics for our last couple minutes um, with Black Mafia Family. Um, I have been hired to, uh, I mentioned it at the onset of the show, I've been brought on the uh, the Stars G Unit team in in creating this new Black Mafia family uh, universe that they're going to be bringing to everybody uh, starting in three weeks on September 26th. Uh, we, the Black Mafia family show will be premiering on the Stars Network. There will be a first season that runs from September through December, and then on the heels of the season one uh, finale. There will be a eight-part docu-series that will tell the real story of Black Mafia Family after you've seen the scripted first season of the Black Mafia Family show. I am helping shepherd this to the screen, and I'm incredibly excited about working with G-Unit and Stars and uh, Jigsaw Productions, which is uh, the uh, production house that they've hired, uh, run by Alex Gibney, who's one of the more celebrated uh, documentarians in, in our, our country right now. And 
it's it's you know I, I'm here to to quell anyone's fears that uh, <laughs> the story is gonna uh, you know go off the rails the way White Boy Rick did. Um, but I can tell you by my very early conversations with these people that they are uh, what they've promised me, and I take them at their word. Um, they are very very uh, uh, wanting to be attention to detail oriented. And and as factually correct and as as authentic as possible in telling the real story in this docu series. So so can you confirm for us right now that you will? Can you guarantee you will get Fifty Cent as a guest on our show? Just kidding. No, I, I can't promise that. But uh, no, no, we're happy. We're congratulations. I will try. <laughs> no, we know you will. Well, congratulations. That's exciting. I I look forward to hearing more about that, and and hopefully you'll you know. Give us some some more insight. Well, on what the I will what I will tell you, and we can close with this, is that although there have been, you know, numerous uh, attempts to tell the the black mafia family story from soup to nuts, the rise and the fall, um, whether it be you know on the Bio Channel or Discovery or Reels. Um, whether it be the scripted show that's going to be coming out, um, there is, or, or whether it just be the the mythology that has built around them uh, and spawned from them in the last twenty years, uh, there is still big portions of the story that have yet to be told, and that's kind of crazy to think, um, but there are large pockets of the rise and fall of BMF that have really not had any illumination. Um, a lot of it having to do with the creation of BMF, um, how Big Meech and, and Southwest T uh, were able to expand outside of Detroit and, and come into all these different cities and, and plant flags and become the biggest um, urban crime organization in American history, uh, become the most iconic. Uh, I always say that they weren't influencing culture, they were culture. And a lot of the early story has never been told. Uh, a lot of the story about how they got down to Atlanta has never really been told. Um, there's been a lot of broad strokes, like yeah, the, the the black mafia family started in Detroit and then expanded. Well, you you guys got to get that you got to get that content out there and get that straight out there because I see on Gangster Report when you you post shit about BMF and Detroit, I'll see responses like I thought those dudes were from, from Atlanta. Atlanta. I know. <laughs> I still can't believe, I still can't believe it's that. A, but <laughs> yeah, the, the the Operation Motor City Mafia, which. Which <laughs> yeah, Operation Motor City Mafia, which which dropped uh, in the Eastern District of Michigan in the U.S. Federal Court in uh, October of 2005. Um, the, you know the the federal prosecutors and the FBI and the DEA they filed a case where the case stems from. If if it was an Atlanta story, the case would have been filed in Atlanta. Yeah, but Operation Motor City Mafia again the the biggest. Uh, dismantling of a urban drug organization in American history, uh, over 150 co-defendants, um, over $300 million confiscated from bank accounts, 
uh, was just ginormous in every way, shape, or form. But again, there are still parts of the story that haven't been told that I'm excited to be able to tell, both with the, the rise about the move to Atlanta, and then frankly about the um, bitter rivalry that developed between the two brothers in this between Terry and Meech at the end of the BMF reign in 2005 or when the bust happened, uh, Terry and Meech were no longer on speaking terms. Their crews were on the verge of war. Um, well, they were very different cats, very yeah. different kinds of dudes. But that, again, that's never really been fleshed out. I mean, people knew that Meech and Terry uh, weren't uh, uh, thick as thieves anymore, but I don't think people realized that uh, if that bust hadn't have happened dare I say there, there could have been an, an internal war that erupted within the BMF ranks pitting brother against brother. That's how bad it had gotten in, in the relations between the two factions of that, of that family. And finally, that story is, is going to be told. I'll tease it and then we'll close it. Um, at Big Meech's birthday party, I believe in 2004, Sorry, sorry, at Southwest T's birthday party uh, in 2004 in L.A., um, there were incidents in the parking lot of the club that it took, uh, that it took place in where uh, the respective members of Meech and Terry's crew pulled weapons on each other. Wow. Wow. I never even, Scott never even told me that yet. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Well, we'll look forward to that. And if you like this topic, check out our episode with Wade Fink, who was he used to be Big Meech's attorney, and then we did an episode with Frank Scartosi, yep. who was a uh, treasury agent. Who, and we're going to try to get him in studio because I, the audio quality wasn't the best with that interview. He was calling in from no. I don't know where the fuck he was. We'll but, be doing a lot of BMF coverage. As but the we'll show, get them get him in studio as the show gets off the ground, and and I'm more involved in, it and I have more access points. I know people love the story, and again, uh, there's such a integral part of hip hop culture. Um, that, that, that they're, they're, they've become ubiquitous. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Scott. And um, please, again, follow us on social media. We'll be back uh, next week. We've got a uh, big El Chapo episode lined up next week. For Jimmy Bucciolato, Scott Bernstein, Original Gangsters Podcast, out. <laughs>